You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. We're in Psalm 35 tonight. Psalm 35, a psalm of David. We're going to talk about how to face evil. How to face evil. How are Christians who are called to turn the other cheek and forgive and be gentle and kind, how are Christians to think about evil in our world? How are we to process that? How are we to pray about that? We're going to get some insight from David tonight. And uh, we're going to start there in verse 1. But before I do that, just a reminder of what the Psalms are about. Kendall Easley writes, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. And then John Piper says, the Psalms are songs, they are poems. They are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. If you thought about that, you're an emotional being because that's how God made you. God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important, and we see that when we read through uh, the Psalms. So look there with me, Psalm 35. We're going to read the entire thing at the beginning. We'll read just a few verses, and I want to pray. And I want to jump in and talk about how to face evil. So there in verse 1, it says, this is a Psalm of David. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. So he's asking God here to fight against the evil that he is facing. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help, draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like shaft before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the Psalms. We are grateful, Lord, that these psalms are given uh, to you or to us from you to awaken and express the shape of our emotional life. And God, I'm just grateful for that. And I pray, Lord, as we study tonight, you would give us insight and understanding about how we are to face and process and pray against evil. Lord, instruct us tonight, encourage us tonight, strengthen us tonight. May we leave different than when we walked in. And we'll thank you, Lord, for that grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this psalm is called an imprecatory psalm. Okay, so I'm going to spell that for you. I want you to write it down. I-M, 
P-R-E-C-A-T-O-R-Y. I-M-P-R-E-C-A-T-O-R-Y. Imprecatory song. There are, depending on who is sharing the data, there are different, um, different views about which psalms are classified as imprecatory psalms. Some say there are seven or ten. There are, uh, there are other imprecatory psalms, depending on how you're uh, measuring those in the psalms. Some examples would be Psalm 7, Psalm 35, which we're reading here tonight, Psalm 69, Psalm 109. Those are other imprecatory psalms. The word imprecatory means to, to, to bring about destruction or to bring about cursing on someone. And so the psalmist here is praying for the destruction of another praying for God's judgment against another. So it's called an imprecatory um, psalm. And there are really four principles from this psalm that I want you to see as we kind of walk through it, help us to think about how to face evil. And this is a big deal because I don't know if you've noticed or not, there's a lot of evil in our world. Have you noticed that? A lot of, a lot of evil out there that is just gut-wrenching. You think about things like terrorism and innocents dying and you think about the hostage situation over in, in Israel right now and, and Gaza. And you, you think about uh, trafficking, human trafficking, and, and just the sickening things that are going on that are being driven by uh, just manifest demonic evil. And how are, we to, how are we to think about that? How are we to deal with that and even pray about that? Well, there are four principles from the psalm that can help to uh, guide us. Number one. When we are in trouble, we need help, which should lead you to say, duh. Right? I mean, that's a duh. Um, but I think we need to say it because it's a principle in this psalm. When we are in trouble, we need help. In this psalm, David experiences, and this is in your notes, a battle, verses 1 through 10. He's talking about his enemies trying to destroy him. He faces malicious witnesses. So I use the word lawsuit there in verses 19 through 28. In verse 11, he says, malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is um, bereft. Um, and so there is a lawsuit here, or, or wrongful accusation, if you will. And there's a trap, verses 19 through 28. They are setting traps for him, trying to destroy him. David has enemies. Now again, as is the case with David, and I think I say this almost every week, we don't know exactly what period of David's life is being dealt with here, because most of David's life he had Fierce enemies. I mean, he had folks that wanted to destroy him. And so we don't know exactly what he's talking about here, but he's, he's talking about folks that are coming against him. So in this psalm, David experiences a battle, a lawsuit, false accusation, and a trap. And David needed the Lord to, first of all, be his champion. Look in verses 5 and 6. Let them be like shaft before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. He's calling for the angel of the Lord to do his work. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. Uh, we see the angel of the Lord coming up in the Old Testament scriptures uh, doing God's work. Uh, and there's different views on who the angel of the Lord is. Sometimes the angel of the Lord is used in a context where people think it's actually 
uh, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Some believe sometimes in other contexts, angel Lord is an, an, an actual angel uh, that God is using to conduct his purposes. Maybe a little bit of both, depending on the context of the situation. But David here is basically saying, I need the Lord to be my champion. I need him to come to fight on my behalf. And he needed the Lord to be his advocate, because in a battle you need a champion. In a lawsuit you need an advocate, right? Look what it says in verse 17. He says, How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. Be my Advocate, and he needed a deliverer. Look in verse 22. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself from my vindication, from my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. And so if you're in a battle, a lawsuit, a trap, you need a champion, an advocate, and a deliverer. David needed some help. And James Montgomery Boyce says this great Presbyterian preacher of the middle to late 1900s, writes, We can apply the words of this psalm to the devil, for he is described in Scripture precisely as David describes his enemies. He is our great foe, roaring lion looking for someone to devour, a slanderous accuser of our brothers. We are like helpless sheep before this powerful enemy. But thank God we have a powerful champion and advocate in King Jesus, it is not wrong for us to pray for his help for the confounding of Satan's devices and to rejoice in anticipation of the devil's ultimate and certain fall. So James Montgomery Boyce is saying, even if you don't have a, 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 an enemy that's trying to come against you in an earthly sense, you have Satan coming against you. So you certainly need to know how to pray against the enemy, and you certainly need the Lord to be your champion. So when we are in trouble, we need help. Can I get amen on that? And we need his help. But here's the second thing. As we start to get into the thinking through this from an ethical perspective. When we encounter evil, we should pray against it. When we encounter evil, we should pray against it. So here's the question. How do imprecatory psalms relate to the New Testament ethic? How do, how do, you, how do you reconcile turning the other cheek? How do you reconcile unconditional love? How do you reconcile... Kindness. How do you reconcile forgiveness? How do you reconcile Matthew 5, loving your enemies, with these psalms that are praying for God's judgment and destruction on enemies? That's a pretty good question, right? How do you how do we how are we to think through uh that that issue? Well, first, we need to make sure we are right with God. All right, we need to make sure we're right with God. Look what it says in verse 7. Without cause, they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my life, so they are after me. But look what it says in verse 19. He says, Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. Let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. So he's basically saying, I, I have, they're, they're, they're those who are against me and that are uh, after me wanting to destroy my life. But David, in calling them enemies, is, is uh, implying that he is right with God, that he is on the right side. He is rightly related to the Lord. You've probably heard this story before, but during the Civil War, someone asked Abraham Lincoln, uh, is God on our side or is God on the other side? Is God for the Union Army? Is he for the Confederate Army? Which side is God on in this thing? 
And Lincoln said, in effect, we should not be concerned about which side God is on, and we should want to make sure we are on His side. And, and that's what's happening here. We need to make sure we are right with God. Because sometimes we're frustrated with people who are coming against us, and we got our own issues, right? And we need to make sure we are right with um, God. So, uh, you know, to give, make it a, to give you an illustration. So, you know, that person over there is slandering me. I don't like the way they're slandering me. And God, I want you to take care of their slander. And the Holy Spirit may say to your heart, well, have you slandered anybody lately? Any backbiting coming out of your mouth? You talking about anybody behind their back? You see what I'm saying there? So before we start praying against others, we need to make sure our own heart is right with God. And when evil people are wreaking havoc, havoc, we should pray for their overthrow. Look in verse 26. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether. He's praying for their overflow. Those who rejoice at my calamity. And he gets even more specific. He says, let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. So he's praying very clearly here that they would be unsuccessful, they would be disappointed, they would be put to shame, they would uh, be defeated. So when evil people are wreaking havoc, it is altogether appropriate that we pray for their overthrow. I think we ought to pray against evil in our world, that that God would bring that evil uh, to a place where it does not exist anymore. I, I mentioned earlier something like you know human trafficking and sex trafficking and some of that just heinous things that are going on. We should pray against that, right? Pray that God would would do what's required to, to bring that to an end. And so when when people evil people are wreaking havoc, we should pray for their overthrow. When when a nation is involved in in an unjust war and they are driven by uh, wrong values and driven by um, uh, sinful um, sinful motivations. We should pray for their overthrow. But here's the other side of that. When we talk about evil people, we should also pray for their conversion. We should also pray for their conversion. And here's the example of someone who is wreaking havoc that the church wanted God to deal with, but who got saved. And his name is Paul. Remember Paul? Paul used to be Saul, and in the early church in the book of Acts, he was the Pharisee of Pharisees, he was Sanhedrin, he was committed to Judaism and wanted to stamp out this new movement called the Way, these followers of Christ, and he was a terrorist. There's no other way to think about it. If someone comes and knocks on your door and then drags you out to the street and throws you in jail, that's terrorism, right? And he was doing what he could do to stop Christianity in his tracks. He was, he was opposed to the way of Christ. In fact, the Bible says when the first martyr of the church was being stoned, his name was Stephen, guess who was holding their coats while they were getting it done? Saul, right? But on the road to Damascus, Saul encountered the risen Christ. Bright light fell on his face. And he was saved, he believed in Jesus, called him Lord, and his name Saul was changed to what? Paul. And he became a missionary, and he was used by God to write scripture and to plant churches. And, you know, can you imagine what, what it would be like if there were no Paul in today's time? His influence is still being felt 
today. And so when we pray against evil, we want to pray that it will stop, that God will deal with that evil. But we also want to pray for evil people to be saved, right? That they would be uh, converted. In fact, over in 2 Peter chapter 3, the Bible says that God is patient. The reason he hasn't returned yet is because he's patient. He's writing to churches in Asia Minor, and folks in Asia Minor were saying, you keep saying your Lord is going to come back and set everything right. Where is he? And they were making fun of Christians. And, and Peter writes to say, listen, the reason he hasn't coming back yet is, first of all, because with God, one year's like a uh, one day is like a thousand years, and, and a thousand years is like a day, so God doesn't play by our timetable. But also, he says in verse 9, God is, God is patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The reason Jesus hasn't come back yet is because he's given more time for evil folks to repent and get right with God. So we should pray for evil people's conversion, that they would come to know Christ. ESV Study Bible says this, Christians must keep as their deepest desire, even for those who mean harm to the church, that others would come to trust in Christ and love his people. Hence, when they pray for God to protect his people against their persecutors, they should be explicit about asking God to lead such people to repentance. And so we want God to, to end evil, to deal with evil, to protect the, the innocent, to protect the righteous but we also want to see evil people get saved. And, and that's kind of convicting because, you know, there are some people out there that I would consider evil that uh, it's kind of hard to pray for them. It really is. And uh, I got a list. You got a list too. Folks, it's hard to pray for. And, and the Bible says that we should pray for folks to come to Christ. In fact, uh, over in uh, Matthew 5, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, pray for your enemies. You can't be more clear than that. Pray for your enemies. So we need to make sure we're right with God, first of all. When evil people are wreaking havoc, we should pray for their overthrow. We should also pray for their conversion. And in personal matters, in personal matters, we should leave it on in God's hands rather to take personal vengeance. In personal matters, we should leave it in God's hands rather to take, than take personal vengeance. Uh, turn to Romans chapter 12 with me. Romans chapter 12. New Testament book of Romans. Romans chapter 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with 
good. And so the, the, the New Testament ethic there is that we don't take matters of vengeance into our own hands. We leave it in God's hands. But let me show you the next chapter. Look in chapter 13. This is where it gets really interesting. And this is where people kind of get, uh, get convoluted when it comes to things like warfare and death penalty and things of that nature. Look what it says in Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant. So the authorities, in like we would say in our context, government authorities are God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he is he do, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now look at me. If you get chapter 12 and 13 mixed up, you're going to get all mixed up. Romans 12 is talking about personal interaction with individuals, being offended by someone personally, being wronged by someone personally. Chapter 13 is talking about governments, nations, okay? So you don't want to get those two mixed up. It is altogether appropriate for governments appointed by God to do the right thing and push back against evil. The Bible is very, very clear on that. But when it comes to your own personal life, if someone runs into you on the interstate, you don't come out with your gun, gun blazing and take matters in your own hand, do you? Well, some people do, but you shouldn't. You shouldn't. First Baptist. That was a bad example. It got quiet in here, y'all. Um, yeah. Yeah, yes. Right, wishing on it. Right, exactly right. Exactly. So so it, it is altogether appropriate for a government to punish wrongdoers and to push back against evil. That's what government's there for. They're an instrument in the hands of God. I would say that's true for you know law enforcement. I'd say it's true for military. They are an instrument in the hands of God to punish evildoers and protect innocent people. So that is altogether biblically, ethically appropriate. But in your personal life, when someone does you wrong, you are not, Romans 12, to take matters in your own hands. You're to leave it in God's Hands. Does that make sense? So these curses back in Psalm 35, the ESV Study Bible says, are expressions of moral indignation, not of personal vengeance. Most of what David dealt with were, were national issues. Like he dealt with the Philistine army. He dealt with Absalom's rebellion. I mean, he was dealing with, dealing with folks trying to overthrow his kingdom. And so I would say Psalm 35 falls more into the Romans 14 or Romans 13 category than it does the Romans 12 category. Does that make sense? Okay, now look back in your notes. Go back to Psalm 35. When we receive God's help, we should offer our praise and thanksgiving. When we receive God's help, 
We should offer our praise and thanksgiving. And we see David's praise in three different categories. First of all, personal praise. Look back in Psalm 35, verse 9. Then my soul, when you deliver me, my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. I love this phrase. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you delivering the poor? So listen, uh, this coming Sunday, I want you to say to your family, spouse, loved one, kids, whatever, um, I want you to say, I'm going to worship with all my bones. Okay? I'm going to worship with all my bones this Sunday. Because that's the, the phrase that he used, personal praise. But then there's corporate praise. Look in verse 17. How long, O Lord, will you look on, rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions? I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng, I will praise you. So David said, I'm not going to just praise you personally, my own little corner of life. I'm going to, I'm going to be so, uh, so overflowing with praise that I will praise you in the midst of the congregation, in the mighty throng. They will hear of your praise coming from my lips. So there's personal praise and there's corporate praise. But then, the way I said this, there's there's evangelistic praise. The word evangelistic means proclamation of good news. Look what it says down in verse 27. Evangelistic praise. Look in verse 27. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servants. That my, then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. So David is saying here, this is what happens when you know the Lord personally. You can count on the fact that he's going to watch over your life. He says it there, great is the Lord, verse 27, who delights in the welfare of his servant. Now everybody look at me for a minute. This is important. Do you believe that? Do you really believe down to the core of your being that God delights in your welfare? You believe that. It's one thing to say that. But I mean, do you really believe that? As you walk through this life, the dangers, toils, and snares, do you really believe that because of your relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that God delights in what's going on in your life? He delights in your welfare in this life. It is great as the Lord. And so David's being evangelistic here. Hey, come to him. Worship him. Follow the one true God because he delights in his uh, servants in, in their welfare. So it's evangelistic praise. It's almost like Psalm 34, which we studied last week. Uh, David saying, taste and see the Lord is good. Taste and see the Lord is good. So evangelistic um, praise. We should be so excited about the Lord, so excited about Jesus, so excited about our relationship with him that others say, man, there must be something to this Christianity thing because they see the excitement in our lives. And here's the fourth thing to keep in mind. All right. When we're in trouble, we need help. When we encounter evil, we should pray against it. When we receive God's help, we should offer our praise and thanksgiving. But fourth and last, when attacked, we should realize that we are following in the footsteps of Jesus. In other words, we're not experiencing anything that the Lord Jesus did not experience. I want you to, I want you to turn with me to the New Testament book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter. First Peter was written to Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor. And you can tell from 
the internal evidence of the book that the Christians he was writing to were going through some very difficult things. He uses phrases like fiery trials because they were being persecuted for following, uh, following Jesus. And so Peter spends a good amount of time talking about what Jesus went through to kind of encourage them that, that they can follow in the steps of Jesus as they go through uh, suffering. Look what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So he's saying basically, if you're a Christian, people are going to speak against you and ridicule you and slander you and say false things about you. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2. What did I say? Verse 12. Yeah, I'm sorry. Making sure you are paying attention. Good job. Keep your yeah, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and, visit, and glorify God in the day of visitation. So, in other words, when people say things about you, um, don't give them ammunition, right? When they speak against you, make their make their speech look foolish because you're doing the right thing. It makes them look like fools. Now, fast forward down to verse 19. Servants. I'm sorry, yeah, uh, for, sorry, verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering. What's the word after suffering? Unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure... This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So in other words, if you suffer for, for doing something dumb, that's, that's on you, right? You, that you're experiencing the consequences of, of, of a, a poor decision, right? Your dumbness, all right? I don't recommend we use that word a lot, but I tell my kids not to say that. All right, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So Christ shows us by his life, through his suffering, how we ought to face suffering. He left you an example to follow in his steps. Now look how Jesus faced suffering. He committed no sin. That's first. That's important. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He didn't play by the rules of the enemy. He didn't use deceit. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But listen to this. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So what did Jesus do? Didn't fight back. Didn't take matters into his own hand. Didn't revile. Didn't use deceit. Didn't play by the rules of the world of the ungodly. He just kept entrusting his life to the Father. He just, just kept putting his life in God's hands, knowing that, that the Lord judges justly. Then in verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In other words, Jesus went through suffering in order that you might be saved. Now fast forward to chapter 4. Chapter 4, 1 Peter. Look in verse 12. 
Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? The Spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. So when someone reviles you because of your Christianity, you experience a special manifestation of the presence of God in your life that you would not experience otherwise. There's a special drawing near that God brings into your life when you are persecuted for the name of Jesus. But, he says in verse 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. In other words, again, don't suffer for doing sinful stuff. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? But here's the verse I want you to see, verse 19. Therefore, he's summing up what he's saying about suffering for righteousness, suffering for following Jesus. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing what? Good. Keep on keeping on. You keep loving folks. You keep acting like Jesus. You put your, your soul in the hands of the Father and just trust He's going to bring you through the persecution, the ridicule, and, and the, the attacks that people bring against you. Years ago, I went to a little conference. It was a small group of pastors, and we spent some time with Jack Graham. And Jack Graham is the pastor of uh, Prestonwood Baptist Church out in uh, Plano, Texas. It's a mega, mega church. Their youth were using our building last June for their uh, camp. They came to Fort Walton Beach for, for their youth camp, and they used our, our sanctuary for worship. And they're going to do it again this year, too, by the way. About a thousand kids, that's all. And... And uh, we, we love to partner with them and try to incur and help them out. Um, but I went to Preston Wood, and I spent some time with Pastor Graham. And he told us his story, and I'd really never heard it before. But uh, when he was young, his father, who worked at a hardware store, was brutally murdered. Guy killed him with a hammer. And he talked about how, as a boy, that, that affected him. And you can imagine. I mean, losing your dad to, to brutal murder. And he really struggled. And he said, but he came across that Romans 12 passage we just read together where it says, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And he said that became, his, that became his motto for life. He's like, I'm not going to let this destroy me. He said, I'm going to overcome the evil that I see in this world with good by serving Jesus, getting the gospel out, seeing lives transformed by the gospel. He could have turned bitter, right? He could have been eaten up with vengeance and bitterness and unforgiveness. But he said, no, I'm going to, back to 1 Peter, I'm going to entrust my soul to a faithful creator while doing good. That's how you and I should walk through uh, mistreatment and hardship when people come against us personally. That's how we are to face evil. So good food for thought. From this Davidic song, this imprecatory psalm. Hey, impress somebody more and use that word, all right? Say, hey, last night we studied an imprecatory psalm. And, uh, and just see how that goes. All right.
Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's Word. May the Lord richly bless you.